That's what a mom sense is a show that is informative, engaging, and inclusive. So it makes perfect sense to not discount the dads in our audience. Here to shed light on a father's perspective is my co-host, Michael Perry, founder of Maple, a parenting app with a mission to create a support system for families so the days are manageable, daily tasks are checked off, and there's harmony in your household. Michael is a trailblazer in tech and is a loving husband and devoted father to his two boys. Together, we bring you a special monthly series called What What Matters Matters Most with Maple. When I became a dad, I wondered where my dad groups at. I made it my life mission to provide parents with the support they needed to best take care of their families and want to make sure all perspectives in the parental experience are equal and fair. So moms, dads, and everyone in your village, be sure to tune in to What Matters Most with Maple on That Total Mom Sense each month. We've We've got got you. Today, Michael and I are diving into how parenting and more importantly, parent involvement has changed over the decades. It's really a new parenting paradigm, and we are so excited to be joined by our dear friend, Eve Rodsky, to really delve into this topic. Eve Rodsky is the New York Times bestselling author of Fair Play, a game-changing solution for when you have too much to do and more life to live. She received her Bachelor of Arts in Economics and Anthropology from the University of Michigan and her JD from Harvard Law School. After working in foundation management at J.P. Morgan, she founded the Philanthropy Advisory Group to advise high net worth families and charitable foundations on best practices for harmonious operations, governance, and disposition of funds. In her work with hundreds of families over a decade, she realized that her expertise in family mediation, strategy, and organizational management could be applied to a problem closer to home, a system for couples seeking balance, efficiency, and peace in their home. Rodsky was born and raised by a single mom in New York City and now lives in Los Angeles with her husband and their three children. Eve Rodsky, welcome to What Matters Most. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining Michael and I today. I'm so happy to be here. It's been a very interesting time to think about these issues, the intersection of the future of work and the gender division of labor. And so I've been so excited to follow what you're you're doing, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. So today's episode is about the new parenting paradigm and how that's changed and and through the generations. So I want to just take us on a little bit of a backtrack history lesson. So in the U.S., it's important to note that World War II was a turning point where women joined the workforce out of a need when, you know, men were were drafted in on the front lines. So there's a statistic in 1944, women comprised 35.4% of the civilian labor workforce. And in 1945, it was 36.1% of the workforce. And at the height of the war, 19,170,000 women were in the workforce, and that grew to 50%. So that's really why women entered in the first place. Can you shed more light on that? Because, you know, it was, it came from a need they, they, where we expected to be in the home the whole time. Absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of times we think we're so far 
removed from these historical patterns, but I sort of like to see it as maybe I use a lot of metaphors. That's what my kids tell me. But, <laughs> um, but you know, if you look at sort of this witch's cauldron that we have now, right, sort of, and if you think of what's in this like brew, that's basically like it been hemlock for women um, in our careers over the past year. It's not like this is like a new brew, right? This, this like cauldron has been brewing for almost a hundred years. And the cauldron is based on the fact that the number one layer is that society, every society is built on the backs of the unpaid labor of women. That's just the reckoning we're going through right now. If you have a society where women are now in the workforce, what happened then historically is that over time, a type of white feminism came in its place, which was, okay, we can stay in this workplace, which is relatively hostile to us. But to do that, we're not asking uh, men in opposite sex relationships to step up on the unpaid labor. We're going to outsource this labor to underpaid, undervalued women of color. And so I think that what started with a need in the Industrial Revolution, and then, of course, culminating in World War II, was that there is power in women having economic security. There is power in women being able to work outside the home. But the reckoning was that we were never going to allow society to ultimately shame women, conjole women, condition women to leave the system that was serving so many others, which was, again, that we would basically women would contribute $10.9 trillion a year of unpaid labor to the world's GDP. Wow. I want to just uh, skip ahead to the 50s where, you know, we almost have like a caricature, leave it to Beaver-esque vision in our head where, you know, men were still the breadwinner and women were homemakers. Why was that the paradigm in the first place? Why did we just fall into these gender roles? The funny thing is that that the role is an important part of this, right? These are all constructs of society. And I'm an organizational manager. I'm a Lawyer, thank you for your kind intro. I, I work for families that look like the HBO show Succession. <laughs> Why I've always been obsessed with the law as a tool is because it's ultimately how you design behavior. So everybody's talking about design thinking these days. And like I'm like, no, no, no. Design thinkers have been around for hundreds of years. We're called lawyers, right? You want people to stop at a stop sign. The way you do that is you have a law. At the end of the day, the only thing we need to know about the gender division of labor or any of these inequitable systems is you just have to ask one question. When you're when you're looking to dismantle them or think about them or the beautiful work that Maple's doing to make the invisible visible, you just have to look at who makes the decisions, whether it's in your own home, whether it's outside the home. And so through the 1950s up through till today, Ultimately, the statistic that keeps me up at night is still to today, 70% of the 1% in our country, the people who make decisions in our corporations and in our government, they have the most traditional family structure imaginable, which is they are white men with stay-at-home wives. So what that means is that that lived experience, no matter how much empathy you can have for me and the breakdown that I had after my second son was born, that hit my identity and my career 
and my physical health and my mental health of realizing the fallacy that having it all meant doing it all. At the end of the day, that empathy will have to be built until we can change who's in power because that the leadership from 1950 to today has remained actually pretty relatively stable for who makes the decisions in our homes in our country and in our corporations. Yes, exactly. Michael, do you have any? It's kind of sad listening to the playback a little bit because Maple, I do think, and I'm not trying to plug Maple here, has tried to really actually empower equality at home. I think that that's really the problem at the end of the day we're trying to solve for. And even when we look at our data, there's such a hesitation from, I'm going to say mom, the person who identifies as mom, to even invite her spouse. Correct. Every user that identifies as a husband or a father, it's almost like 100% of them invite their wife. They just expect that if they're going to be using Maple to run their household, that their wife is going to join them in the journey of running their household. Very few women as of today were, you know, shortly post-launch who are signing up to use Maple even want to invite their spouse because it actually makes them feel more depressed at the realization that their spouse is just going to ignore the invite. And so well, that's why we're working together. Yes, yeah, exactly. it's, a very, it's a very deep issue at every single level. And I know that there's a lot of men in my circles, at least who are acknowledging it and want to equally see change. It's almost like this, people are like giving up and it's like, no, we're just getting started still. Like we, we have to continue to lean in collectively together. Konik and I've talked about this in the past, recognize my own platform as a white male who's worked in executive roles at publicly traded companies and equally needing to relinquish my seat to create space or use my platform to prop people up because it won't change otherwise. There's like a certain level of fearlessness and selflessness that has to go into participating in the change um, because very few people want to do it. They're protecting the system that's put them there. Well, your tool is really important. And actually seeing a white man in power saying that they, in the power of their company, saying that I want to devote my life to solving this particular issue is actually pretty important. (laughs) So I will say, of course, you want to see your voice and the table um, for decision makers that have the lived experience of people around this country. But I do think it's very powerful that you, as a white man, has said that this is a problem that is worthy of of your time and fixing, because ultimately it, it has been the domain of women sort of screaming into the, yes. or whatever that adage is, right? The, if is one hand clapping, really clapping or something. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but there's one thing you said, Michael, that I think is actually really important. And that is, I talk about this a lot in Fair Play, um, that hesitancy to even bring up this topic. The, one of the most interesting things to me starting in 2011, when I was starting to research this issue mm-hmm. around the unfairness of who does unpaid labor, the chores and the housework of the home, I started to ask women, especially, you're complaining to me. I appreciate that. Like, thank you. You know, you came to me because you want to be interviewed because you have a lot to say. So how do you communicate about domestic life, right? How do you and Michael communicate about domestic life? And what I was shocked by was the amount of people who said to me, we don't communicate about domestic life. I would never bring this up to my partner. And then, so I would write that down because back then, 10 years ago, I earnestly believe that. So I would write in my moleskin, doesn't communicate about domestic life. And so I remember when that changed one day, when this woman, I was a a COO, uh, you know, so again, she's well-versed in systems and understood conceptually the idea of fair play, the idea of ownership and similar to Maple's mission of having a partner be able to handle the tasks in the home. 
So she says she doesn't communicate about domestic life. So I write, doesn't communicate about domestic life. And then 20 minutes later, she says, well, you know, lately when my partner has stopped forgetting to take the laundry out of the wash and putting it in the dryer, I've just been dumping it on his pillow. So then I crossed out in big letters, doesn't communicate about domestic life. And I wrote in all caps, communicates about domestic life. I'll say one more thing that I think I'm hoping your listeners, the listeners here will reflect on. During COVID, somebody said, you should really go on this Facebook group and lurk here. The Facebook group was called The Reasons I Hate My Husband and Kids During COVID. <laughs> 27,000 members out of the UK. So I'm, I'm stalking this Facebook group, lurking on there. And one woman writes a very provocative post. She writes, if my husband dies during COVID-19, it won't be because of the disease. It'll be because of me. So I was like, oh, wow, okay, I'm going to DM her. So I DM her and say, hey, I'm a researcher. You know, I'm on relationship dynamics, the gender division of labor. I would love to understand how you communicate with your partner. Do you have time for an interview? And she was like, no interview needed. I don't communicate with my partner about domestic life. This is my safe space. So Mm -hmm. let's just reflect on the fact that instead of inviting your partner to Maple, instead of Reading fair play, like the safe space for most people right now about domestic conversations is the equivalent of publicly threatening to murder them on a Facebook forum. Yeah. That is what we're trying to combat right now. In my own conversations, which are not even at the iceberg of yours, um, I'm on the helicopter trying to get to your level of research. But over the last year of working on this problem and speaking to maybe a thousand different parents, it's crazy to me the volume of women who expressed that they love their husband, but that they were open to divorcing him simply to have law enforced equality in their Correct. household. Correct. And I'm like, holy fuck, we're getting to a point where people are divorcing their soulmates, not because they cheated, not because they've been abusive, not because they've been emotionally abusive, but because they are such a bad partner or lack awareness of how to be a healthy 50-50 partner that their wife is willing to take the step of removing them from their house, having a divorce, forcing a 5-2 or 3-4 shared custody schedule, and getting on a plan of picking up their kids from school by law order because they can't get past this. Right. And you're it's just like, like invest in a tool, invest in these tools. I mean, that's what I just want to tell people, right? It's like when I talk to, se- and so I'll add on that, when I talk to second time fathers, who are almost always more engaged, even though they have more money. So that's the thing. The more money you have, it's not a privilege not to do more. It's the opposite. These men recognize that the more resources they have actually, and the closer they get to death, the legacy was in the child work and the housework. That is not chores. It's our humanity. But when I talk to these second time dads, they say things to me like, yes, my wife, Almost always it's a divorce over that of the issue of of unfair labor in the home, or it started with that to the point of maybe domestic, you know, affairs or whatever due to a lot of identity loss and other things that start with the resentments we're talking about today. But all of these men, they say to me, like when I ask for their advice is just get it right the first time, like men pick up your kids from carpool twice a week. Like, it's just, it's not that. And it means you have a deeper relationship with your children. So that's what, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so I think taking it out and why fair play became a love letter to men is that the systems that are set up right now, where the number one thing women said to me in opposite sex relationships was that they couldn't shut off their mind. But the number one thing men to me wasn't said to me, wasn't that I don't want to do childcare and housework, or I don't want to be, I want to be a terrible father. It was, I don't know my role. 
And so when you look at the home as an organization, and, and if I was a consultant coming into your business and an employee said to me, I don't know my role, when I do something, I always get it wrong. I would know that that was a toxic organization for that person because it lacks psychological safety. It lacks the ability for that person to be able to carry through their own mistakes. And so I think that we have to recognize that we're all complicit in our own oppression in this country in creating the systems that we currently live in. That's right. Yeah, you, you nailed it. When you have an 80-20 rule household, it's almost always mom having to ask for help and she shouldn't be needing to ask for help in a partnership. But all of the men had the same exact feedback time and time again, which was, I want to help my wife. I want to be a good dad. I just don't even know what to do. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of it, and when Maple had a, when we launched, we had a blog post about, you know, moving from 1950 to 50-50 is that we have just inherited such a generational archaic operating system of the home that there's a fear factor of like, I don't want to mess my kids up and I don't want my wife to be upset with me. And she's the authoritarian of the household. And I've been in you know similar parent groups as, as you, Eve, where mom says I'm CEO of the house. And so she's just asserting herself that unless you're being told what to do by the boss, you're not supposed to do anything. And so it's 100%. a, it's a bit of a, just this toxic washing machine to some extent. Well, I just got chills because it reminds me so much of the story that I didn't get to get into the book. But if you'll permit me to tell like this two minute story, I think it gets a lot at what sort of the fair play philosophy is and also what uh, Maple as an amazing tool does exactly that. I interviewed a couple where the man actually said it, Michael, (laughs) I want to like punch him in the face. This when we could meet with people in like 2018, where it was a, a couple named Ed and Julie, where he said, you know, I'm the CEO outside the home and my wife's the CEO of the home, right? And I was like, I, oh, Ed. But Julie took that role very seriously. Yeah. And there was complete resistance, right? Like yeah. your fair play message is not helpful here. I'm okay doing it all. And you know, Ed is the money earner. I was like, okay, great. If it's working for you, I'm not here to disrupt that. I'm here yeah. to provide tools for people who want to see more fairness, right? It's never yeah. going to be equal 50-50 equality, but there is equity, there's fairness. So I had a good, great interview with them. I was never there to convince people. It was just their early sociological interview. And then all of a sudden I get a call from Julie at the end of 2018, who was like, do you remember that system you were telling me about that you're working on? Like, can we try it? And I said to her, well, sure. Like I have a lot of beta testers, but like this is the holiday season and it just feels like your emotions feel very high and your cognition is low. It's probably not the best time. And she's like, well, I'm done. I'm done. It was the same. Like, I love Ed, but I'm out. Like I am going to take a forced vacation. I was like, what is going on? And I said to her, well, what's, what's triggering you? She's like, I just need Ed to take something. It's the holidays. Turns out her mother entered hospice. So a lot of women, what I've seen, whether it's the pandemic or a sick parent, you are okay because you're teetering on that brink of saying, I can do it all. And then one thing comes, whether it's your health, a caregiving responsibility, and either you get knocked out of the workforce or your health fails. So this woman's mental health was failing. And so I said, okay, well, obviously there's other things you can do, like see a therapist. But in the meantime, if can Ed take one thing off your plate? So, and I said, what would it be if he could? And so she tells me it's her second son Brody's second grade secret Santa project, because it has to be done from scratch. And so I said, okay, so of all the hundred tasks that you know are in fair play, you're asking him just to hold the homework card for one project. I think Ed can handle that. And then what Julie said though, and it's what Michael was saying earlier was all the reasons why Ed couldn't. So she just Mm -hmm. said she needed help. 
he just told me she wanted to evolve and we're working to get there. And then yeah. she starts saying, well, Ed will never do the job correctly. He's going to, to deliver it not on time. The kid's not going to have the project over and over again, all the reasons. And so I said, you know what, Julie, let's just step back for a second. Why does this matter to you? Obviously, this project is something that matters to you. If you care so much, that's a trigger to get off your plate. She says to me, I care about this for two reasons. One, we're getting more wealth in this family. And so a $100 Nerf gun is sort of what our kids expect for Christmas. I would love for them to get a perfectly, you know, like a beautifully wrapped gift from a friend, a homemade gift and realize there's value Mm-hmm. in gifts that are given that aren't $100 Nerf guns. And then also I noticed a little girl who Brody, her popular second son and second grade had drawn is a girl who lines up with her backpack every day as soon as she gets to school. So like she doesn't greet anybody. She doesn't say hi to anybody. She's just sitting there waiting on the line for the teacher to call them in because she's new there. And she said, I would love for Brody to make her a nice gift to welcome her to the school. And so I then I said to her, well, what if you just said that to Ed? Take him for coffee, like at night, like just give him the why of those two things about why. And so then the good news is I got them after the holiday and they were on like Bluetooth in their car. And Ed starts to chime in that he took the project um, with the full ownership that we're talking about. And he started Googling Secret Santa projects for little girls. They decided on a popsicle stick jewelry box with colored popsicle sticks and glitter and glue. He took Brody to the store. He told me it's called Michael's and I should really check it out because it's a really cool store with lots of crafts <laughs> and they have everything there. It's really not hard to find Eve. And I was like, awesome. I'll check out that store. It sounds awesome. <laughs> and then they come home and they start building it. But in this small interaction, what Julie said was that the change and Ed sort of taking this ownership of this project, letting her, letting him fail, letting him have the space to do this with Brody was, she said it was life-changing for her because it was the first time that she thought they were in it together because she noticed out of the corner of her eye that not only was Ed sitting on the floor, something she had actually never seen him do with their kids, but that he had glitter on his hands. And so I always think about that story because it doesn't have to be these profound changes, right? It can start with these small things like like glitter. I want to just point out a very obvious inequity that's always going to be there is that only women can have kids. So only we really understand and experience the burden of pregnancy, labor and delivery, just the whole childbirth process, postpartum, all of that. So we're never going to be on equal footing ever. The, the onus is on, um, on men to understand that and fill the gaps because it's just, it's never going to be equal. Well, I think the, the hardest part for me in that, in that equation, because even though I know a lot of people are moving towards the term birthing parent as opposed to birthing mother because of being trans inclusive, which we are. Mm-hmm. But but I think the hardest thing for me in the data because of that inequity was that the number of men in the 21st century who said to me, there was nothing for me to do in the first six months because my wife was breastfeeding. So there was nothing huh. for me to do. Right. So that I think that's where the like the idea of a maple or a tool to recognize that there is so much more than just feeding a child that goes into running a household right. is a really important thing because that's where when the invisible becomes visible, you can say in advance, before you have these shitty patterns, I am going to breastfeed. I'm so glad we're both committed to that. 
So here's how you'll make meals for me and you. Here's how you'll fill out the school forms. I'm so excited for you to deal with all the thank you notes of the beautiful gifts we're getting. So it allows the person to come in, the other non-birthing parent, to come in to say, you are a part of this. I see you and your contributions. One thing I want to acknowledge is that, you know, we all are products of baby boomers. You know, the father took a back seat and it was something that was completely accepted. You know, it's good on us that in our generation, we've changed that. And, you know, Michael, you're a testament to this big time having, you know, really dedicated your life to launching Maple and and what it stands for. But now fathers are you know, stepping up and they want to have a proper division of labor in the home and they're, you know, changing the diapers and they're making the food. And, and it's so refreshing to see that because we didn't grow up with that. Yeah. I mean, if, if I can just touch on one thing really quickly about back to the birthing parent and then yeah. I can add a little color to that. I yes. actually have a huge, huge problem with this. And this probably could be its own separate podcast, a heterosexual white male. There's been very few times in my life I've been treated as a second-class citizen. Mm-hmm. The birthing process, the hospital makes that every step of the way uh, for all the right reasons about mom and mom's journey from birthing classes to even being admitted to the hospital to being the guest of the patient in the hospital versus being the co-parent of the newborn mm-hmm. child in the hospital. Technology is a great supporter of the solution, but it's always at a system level. And so the system of the home is broken. And to Eve, we, you talked about this earlier, the system of government is broken because it's being led by the same group of people. There's a lack of diversity of thought there. Corporations are broken, but the system of becoming a parent, the is process the of journey the is, my wife went through IVF twice. I was treated as a second-class citizen almost the entire way. She just gave birth five weeks ago. I was treated as a guest and she had to sign off to let me be a caregiver to our child, which was bizarre given that we've been married for almost 15 years and have two children together. But she had to basically relinquish permission to me to take care of our child, our newborn child in the hospital. And so like the hospital sets this tone, in my opinion, from the beginning yep. that mom is the caregiver, that mom is the one responsible, that mom is the one taking care of the baby. And dad from the beginning is simply a supporting cast member who steps up when being told when and where to step up. That's a whole different discussion. And I'm a humongo philanthropist with UCSF. And so I'm taking this to a different level at this point, because I'm actually, to be quite frank, yes. I'm, yeah, that's I, great. I'm, I'm actually <laughs> pissed off. And I'm someone who's given hundreds of thousands of dollars to support uh, in vitro fertilization research. And so we're having much broader discussions about changing the way that we equalize mom and dad and the expectation of mom and dad to show up from the very beginning. Even my wife had just given a C-section and they're talking to her about how to change a diaper. And I'm like, dude, I'm what? right here. And, oh and, I'm on, and I'm on my second kid. Like I can, I can change this diaper. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so I think that there's some really deep rooted issues there um, that then follow back into the home and just set the tone wrong from the very, very beginning. 1000%. And yes. then you see it also in schools. So the problem is that the community systems that Michael are talking about then carry on to the schools. That's right. um, my, my favorite thing was I had my mom help me with a project. I said, I need you. My mom is a sociologist. So I said, I need you to just find the front desk of 60 random schools across the U.S. Like find me the front desk. And then I called and I said, hi, I'm a researcher. Why do you call mothers first? Why do you call mothers first? I was trying to get an understanding of 
the dynamic in 60 different schools for why mothers and there some were just like, you know, logistics, like, well, I, the mother put their name down first. Right. But what I think it was coming out is something that Michael is going to change at, U, at USF. And, and it, that will be a, hopefully a model for other for other medical institutions. It's this notion. And this is going to sound esoteric. So just bear with me for a second that as a society, we have leaned into men's time and treated it as if it's a diamond, if it's diamonds, it's limited resources. It's a limited resource. We treat women's time as if it's infinite, like it's sand. So let me see if that's esoteric. So let me explain how this comes down. That time discrimination ends up hurting women. So what you start seeing everywhere, if you believe that men's time is diamonds and women's time is sand, you'll start seeing it everywhere. So You'll see it if you look at the data around if women enter a male profession. If women enter a male profession, obviously you can guess what happens, right? The salaries automatically go down. We start saying things in our society like breastfeeding is free. Back to those schools, the spoiler alert, the number one answer I got for why they call women first was two things. One, that they pick up and two, they wouldn't want to bother men during their work day, right? So it is this guarding and guarding, but this is the problem. Like you said, our cultural institutions do it. Like I'm not gonna, you know, Michael is, he's not gonna be the one trying to change these diapers. You know, his time is diamonds. Like I might as well (laughs) talk to the person whose time is infinite, right? Even though she has her organs on the table. I remember I I was like, my organs have been removed from me. Like you can tell my husband, like, you know, how to do whatever you're asking to do. But then I think the hardest part and why, we should do many of these because this is ultimately just the 101 of unlearning, right? This took me 10 years to learn. We, we become complicit in our own oppression. And so we start saying things to our partner that mirror these terrible societal messages that Michael was talking about that can really hurt the other person. Mm-hmm. Like when men say, well, I'm the breadwinner. I'm the one who puts a roof over our head. Mm-hmm. Or when men say things like, well, what did you do all day? Or if men say things like, well, you're so overwhelmed, just get help. These things that are super dismissive to the humanity in our chores and our unpaid labor. And then women start to become complicit in their own oppression by saying, well, my husband works, he's paid more, so I should do more unpaid labor. Or they say, I'm a better multitasker, I'm wired differently for care. All of these are untrue. Or in the time it takes me to tell Michael what to do, I should do it myself. Or my favorite, yes, we're two colorectal surgeons, but my husband's better at focusing on one task at a time and I can find the time. And so I think as a society, right, there's no way to find time. It just becomes a different expectation over how women are supposed to use our time. And so that's ultimately what got me. And Michael, as you start to get people to use Maple, like what, what got me to be empowered to change the dynamic in my household was to finally understand that I only had 24 hours in a day, just like Seth did. And if I was gonna demand equal time choice that didn't require divorce, I just said to him, look, you know what? You have four hours after our kids go to bed to check sports center, finish your work deck, your PowerPoint and work out. Like I'm doing things in service of our household till my head hits the pillow. Mm-hmm. And Seth, that's fundamentally unfair. If that means our time choice changes a little and you only get three hours and I get one more hour, then it's going to be um, the way, a better way for us to be in this household. I'll be less, I'll feel less resentful. You can hang out with the kids and do bedtime routine. So I get my time back. It became a much more constructive use of our conversation when Seth said, yeah, that is unfair that your time seems to not be one that you get to choose, but I get to choose a lot more how I use my time in the course of a week. 
How do you recommend navigating these conversations as partners and then more broadly as a family where you even get the kids involved so that mom doesn't bear the brunt? So what I like to say and why I think, again, why I love you guys is that we need to make the invisible visible. We need those tools. And so what Maple and Fair Play are, they're both tools at different stages of the game, right? We need tools to implement systems, which is what Maple is, but we also need tools to begin to have different conversations about the home. So the problem back to, if you go back to the woman who dumps wet clothes on her partner's pillow, (laughs) if you realize that we're already communicating about the home, we are already communicating. And you think of what Maple and Fair Play is trying to do as a communication shift and not a start, it becomes a lot more easy for couples to manage and understand why they want to be part of these systems. So before you can get to the what, though, I like to say, you know, really thinking about your why is important. And so I thought, could you have like 10 seconds to play one a little game with me? I love it. Let's do it. Yeah. I'm very okay. competitive. So. All right. Uh, <laughs> totally. Well, this, this is it's called Cards for Humanity. It's the opposite of yeah. Cards Against Humanity. It's sort of using the fair play cards the way one okay. couple started using it that I found super profound a long time ago. That's a way to enter these conversations. And you'll see what I mean. So I'm going to start with you, Michael. So I'm going to just start shuffling. Uh, so, okay. so, what, so for our listeners, there's 100 cards. This is the fair play metaphor. It's a metaphorical card deck, but I actually happen to produce a real one. So we're going to go through and I'm just going to start shuffling. Tell me yeah. when, just tell me when to stop. Okay, stop. Okay, bedtime routine. T- just tell me any story of your childhood. I want to know who put you to bed. Uh, How do you remember going to bed? Did you have a lovey? Did you have a bed? Did you sleep with your siblings? Like anything you want to tell me about your bedtime routine? Well, my mother was a waitress and my father was a car salesman. So my dad was often working until 10 o'clock at night. So in fairness to him, bedtime wasn't an option. My bedtime routine would have been either by a babysitter or my mother or my grandmother. Obviously it required brushing my teeth. I used to have these red bunk beds and I now do this with my son because I do my the sibling, sibling involved or no, my sister had her own room. Okay. Um, many nights she would come in and sleep on my top bunk. My sister and I are two years apart, but my mom would always get in bed. If she had just come back from waiting table, she put all of her change in my piggy bank and we would talk about Aww. it. But the consistent thing that I now do with my son is she'd get in bed with me and then she'd like stroke my hair and she'd say, she always said the same thing every single night at the end of the night, which was close your eyes, think happy thoughts, and you'll fall right to sleep. And she kissed me and go, what? And now every single night I put my son to bed and I do the exact same routine. I just got like really teary. And I feel yeah, like so I know sweet. you better even than like, I, I don't always expect to cry on these things, but sometimes it happens. So thank you for sharing that. And I just think like, okay, so that was, I timed us. That was like 32 seconds. And now I will always feel like I have a a deeper relationship with Michael. I I will always feel like I have a deeper relationship for just knowing that about you. And so you can imagine if you do this with your partner who you think they know these things about you. So tell me, okay, kind of get your turn. Tell me about bedtime routine for you growing up. Okay. Well, my parents immigrated to the States when I was two and a half. There was a period of time when I was one to two years old where I was with my grandmother my dad and my aunt in India. And my mom came out here on her own to pursue higher education. So she, I can't even imagine what she went through leaving her toddler across the world, seeking opportunities. So she had to just talk to me on 
phone calls, you know? Um, and of course I'm not like talking, talking at that age. So like, I can't even imagine the angst that she felt leaving me. So during that time, it was just this village, this joint family that I had that took care of me. When we moved here, it was definitely my, my mom, you know, who would put me to sleep. And I don't know, I, I mean, not to knock my dad, I, I don't have any memories, but like, it's a cultural thing, but there was no like being read to or, all right, good night, lights off. <laughs> yeah. So I, I didn't get that with him, but I, I did have those moments with my mom. And what about now? Do you do good night that we, lights off or do no, you actually take a... We split it. I mean, Sunil and I, like, you know, we have a very fair play driven household, um, you know, we had twins, so there was no way he was going to be like, all right, you're on your own. Hmm. You know, there was, you know, you take one, I take one from the <laughs> get-go. Um, and then now, you know, the twins are four, our youngest is three, and we split them up because their preference for books is different. Shrey loves his dino books. And so usually it, we, we trade off. So I'll go into, you know, our master bedroom with Shrey. We're reading his dino books and the twins are reading, you know, whatever they want with, um, with their dad. And then we alternate so that we each get to do bedtime routines with all the kids. That's what I love. That's so beautiful about that is you can imagine. So say a couple is having a struggle over the importance of the bedtime routine, right? If I know about for you that, you didn't get to have that time growing up because of your culture or because your mom wasn't there for you. I, as your partner, I would want to step forward to say, okay, if bedtime routine is important to you, we will do this. We will do this together. As opposed to you saying like, you need to put him to bed, put his pajamas on. There's yeah. something really beautiful in understanding that the tools we're talking about today. Yes. You may think of them as chores and housework, but I just picked one random card and we had this yeah. unbelievable conversation. We could do it for every card that, yeah. that these things that we consider chores are our humanity. Absolutely. They're literally what our memories are. They're what build that's our right. character. Yeah. That's right. And, and our that's, kids I are going to remember it. that. Our kids they will are remember think, it when they're 40 and they're thinking back to who put me to bed. You know, I'm See, certain they're going to remember that mom they and will. dad both did. Yeah, they will. This is the thing that always baffles me. You know, my parents had children way too young and um, they, we were in a very challenging economic situation. And so I don't really blame anyone because I think that he did what he had to do. Oftentimes I have friends who I think find my posts obnoxious. I'm very involved in my children. What's crazy is like, I just find it to be such a privilege to not miss out on this. Mm-hmm. It's like, I actually, in a weird way, like people are like, oh, well, you're so equal with your wife. It's like, well, I don't want her to have a shitty life, first of all, so we're in this together. <laughs> exactly. But like, selfishly, I actually learned a super painful lesson because when my wife and I first started, our divide and conquer was, okay, I would work. I'd come get off of work, come home. I was working in the city and bath time was my thing. And then after bath time, I'd get him in his pajamas. And then my wife got to do bedtime and reading. And after getting to do that a couple of times, I'm like, holy shit, this is special. Like, why am I, mm-hmm. why am I missing out on this? Like, why, why am I not getting to stroke my children's hair and be there? Cause someday he won't be there. He'll be a grown man out of my house. And it just blows my mind that people don't just like embrace the fact that this is also fleeting. What's triggering them? Cause obviously they're having a reaction to your post. So what do you so, think is triggering them? I've had multiple people make comments to me about like, is it necessary to like, put your parenting or even before my wife and I had children, I posted about my wife a lot. And it was always within the vein that I feel really, I think marrying an entrepreneur is a terrible idea. 
Um, <laughs> and to have a very supportive partner, there's a certain level of just like gratitude that I have for my wife that she never left me. Like, I don't know why she, to be honest, I think that there's probably many times where that would have been a very okay and very wise decision <laughs> to have a better quality of life. And that shift has changed over the years a little bit to focusing on the privilege of seeing my children grow up. And I think to some extent, the triggering piece is that I think, and this is going to be a very controversial thing to say, and I've been struggling to figure out how to articulate this. So bear with me for a second. I think that people grow up, like when we came out with our launch campaign, it's not 1950, it's 50-50. I was very scared to share that with my grandfather because my grandfather to me is the epitome of a good man. My grandmother still gets up, cooks some <laughs> breakfast every single morning. He's kind of like the old boys club, you know, 80 years old. He like put glass in houses and skyscrapers, you know, blue collar guy. I think that there's like this weird uh, cloak of masculinity of what it looks like to be a man and doting over your children or getting on the floor and getting glitter on your hands mm -hmm. or doing those things is not what our fathers or grandfathers did. And so you look like less of a man for doing mm -hmm. the housework mm -hmm. and you look like less of a man for being the caregiver to your children. And the feedback that I've gotten over the last two and a half years of being a father and going to the park, oftentimes to only seeing moms or going to places and only being around other moms is that like, that's my wife's job. Um, I, my job is to be the protector. My job is to take out the trash. My job is to build the toys. My job is to, it, it has something deeply connected with threatening masculinity as mm -hmm. they see it. It's crazy. And I just think that like the root of masculinity in my mind is to care at the highest level for the people you love. And if that meant in traditional times to go hunt and bring back food, or if that means in today's world being emotionally available to your children or giving your children your time or being there for your wife, that to me is the highest form of masculinity. And I think that that discrepancy between viewpoints that we've attached masculinity to this like very system legacy way of thinking versus like this really, I think actually the origins of a relationship of like the divide and conquer and love. And I just find it sad to me because at some point our kids will grow up and you don't get it. Last night I put my son to bed and I just like held his face <laughs> and I was just looking at him tired as fuck. Got four week old <laughs> yeah. kid, you know? And I'm just like trying to be so present. And he keeps asking me to read different Paw Patrol books. I just want to be like, go to sleep. And I'm looking at him. I'm like, you know what? There will be a day I pay a million dollars to have this back. Well, it's funny you say that because I've been thinking a lot about funerals lately when my client called me and he's, again, back to the HBO show Succession, all of these men that I work with um, are often these people who say they're not going to die, right? They have very big lives. And one did. Uh, he was a, a friend of my client and my client called me to say he was thinking about me during this person's funeral before COVID. And it was a packed church um, in Northwest US. He tells me that there's these, his three daughters, this man's three daughters are all dressed in white and they get up to the podium pew. I'm a Jew. So I don't know what to call it. The yeah, pew, yeah, the pew. Yeah, yeah. They start reading a poem. So first daughter reads a shelf silver, silver scene people think, or Dr. Seuss, like really silly poem. The next daughter comes up and she reads this beautiful, very well-written funny poem. And then the third daughter comes up in her all white and reads this other beautiful poem. And they lean into the microphone. And they say, those were the poems our father wrote for us as our tooth fairy. I think about that a lot. I mean, I'm telling, I could, I could tell that story like a hundred times and it still makes me tear up because 
I think about the legacy for that man where he, in traditional masculinity, he would probably be known for the wealth that he built. But really the only thing that mattered in that church, according to my client, in terms of people tearing up and understanding this man and who he really was, was recognizing that he was like the secret poet who was the tooth fairy for his child. Like, why is that not celebrated? Why is it that we had to learn about that from yeah. his from his funeral? Yeah. Like, why aren't right. we parenting out loud? And why aren't you getting a million thousand claps when you post these things? So it is a culture change, but important. And I'm glad you're still doing it, even in the face of people saying, you know, well, I maybe honestly, stop posting. That story resonates with me on a very deep level because... Well, it's like fair play is and needs to be a very discussed about body of work. Um, and we do need to have a cultural and system change as a movement right now, because I think we all can agree we're living through a very sadly quiet separate epidemic of depression mm-hmm. inside of people's homes and things of that nature. Is like there's this other side of fair play that is just I think dads are just missing a lot of. And it's not just showing up in the right way for their life partners. And in some case, you know, that's not a heterosexual thing. That's just like in every household, there's mm-hmm. an 80, 20 issue. Mm-hmm. It's that at the end of my life, I don't think I'm going to think about a single thing I did professionally. And I'm going to wish so badly I could have every minute back with my children. Mm-hmm. And I hope that they go up. I hope that they feel that I was a good enough father to show mm-hmm. up that they're like every night, my son and I end the night, every night reading this book called daddies are awesome. Uh, as I've been trying to brainwash my son to not be a mommy's boy and to come to this side of the team. <laughs> and it's like, you know, I feel bad for my dad now as a father. Just like, fuck, he missed so much. It didn't have to be like that. I feel the same way about my dad. And I the patterns, it's been very painful to watch that he did not want to redo it with his grandkids. I sort of thought, you know, naively that he would. And so I feel the same way. I feel a sadness, but also I think part of maybe why we they call research me search. And so there's something about our family systems that made us care about these issues. For me, why I care so deeply about this work was is really because of my privilege, meaning when I had my own personal breakdown over these issues after my second son was born. And you know the story, Michael, I, my husband sent me a text that said, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. But when I was crying on the side of the road over being like the fulfiller of my husband's smoothie needs and recognizing <laughs> that I didn't have of the career marriage combo I thought I was going to have, I think why I cared so deeply was because I was recognizing that I had two reasons why this shouldn't have happened to me. One, like we said, I had an absentee father, painful, super painful, being a parental child, right? So I had a disabled younger brother. I was responsible for being the latchkey kid who put him to bed at night in Avenue C and 14th Street in Stuyvesant Town where we grew up. And my mother worked late nights. She was a professor of social work or teacher, and she was trying to become a professor. To, so, and so I think they were hazing her for to see if she could get tenure. So they gave her all the night classes from like seven to nine. I think also I helped her. I had a World Wildlife Federation like free calendar. I always remember like the pictures of like the pandas, and I would circle like the first of the month, being like it's rent time. Like don't want to see any more of those eviction notices under our door. So I was always a parental child. From literally seven, eight, I said, I'm going to have an equal partner in life. I don't want this life. I'm going to have an equal partner in life. So I already was thinking about these in the time that maybe most kids wouldn't. And then on top of that, I'm a Harvard trained mediator. I'm literally trained in difficult conversations. And so I kept thinking, oh my God, back to where we started. This is full circle to the beginning of this podcast where I said, I can't have a conversation with my partner about these issues. And I'm trained in conversing. 
So I guess what I realized back to the privilege of being a parental child and thinking about these things since I was seven and being trained in difficult conversations, yet not being able to have a conversation in my own home, I realized that the foundation had been built in our society so poorly that you can't build a house on it. And so you really have to dismantle and start over. And so I figured, oh my God, if I can introduce systems to make decisions about who's going to run the next most important newspaper for this you know, family business, I can probably help people make a decision over who's going to take bedtime routine for their kid on Monday night. And so I think that's it. For, it was the understanding that I had a unique perspective, possibly, and also the fact that if I felt like if this was happening to me, this is probably happening to a lot of other people because it shouldn't have happened to me and it still did. Hmm. The fact that COVID has changed the experience completely and we're still living in this world where um, everyone's working remotely, we're all under one roof now, and that's not going to change anytime soon with all the variants out there. How does that color the, you know, household dynamic? Because, you know, if you have two working parents and younger children at home, how do we just figure all of that out and the power struggles that can Well, the one, yeah, I think about this a lot. This is what keeps me up at night that, but the first thing I think is important to recognize is just the way we use language here. So almost every article that came out in the beginning of the pandemic said inevitably childcare and housework will fall on women. And so I'm here to tell you, right, this is not inevitable. It's fucking inevitable. It's actually really inevitable, but it may have been predictable, right? But I think when we start saying inevitable, we lead to a place of, well, then there's nothing we can do about it, right? So the inevitability of it is really important to recognize that this was designed this way. It helped a lot of the capitalistic patriarchal systems that have been in place to keep it um, unpaid as my mother always says, back to her professor of social change, she said, there's three steps to social change. There's pre-consciousness, the consciousness, then the fight for solutions. So the beauty of COVID is that we're not in pre-consciousness anymore. We are in consciousness. Does that mean automatically you can wave a wand and men were going to start saying, my time shouldn't be guarded like diamonds and your time should be (laughs) diamonds? No, we've had a hundred years of treating women's time as infinite and less valuable, right? So it's going to show up in our hardest times where traditional patterns will will rear their ugly heads. And so we saw many uh, situations of men um, guarding their own time and space and many situations of women having to leave the workforce because of that, being forced out or saying one woman said to me, and I always think about her, Yes, my job is stressful. My husband's job is stressful, but at least he gets an office with a door and I'm working with a toddler on my lap in a bathroom. So I always think about that. Yeah. Michael, what are you seeing in your research? I've been growing my team and talking to parents and I've been having conversations through many different lenses. And there has been obviously the same kind of consistency where myself included have a office with a door that closes my employees, my sister, the women around me who are mothers and and, uh, and still contributing full-time to the, the workforce are like scrambling. They're like, I, I think that it's fair to say they're almost drowning to some extent. My wife, her whole time is dedicated to our children right now. I was, I openly call myself a part-time caregiver because I am going to a nine-to-five job. I'm not nearly involved on the day-to-day as she is, but I go down there and have I have breakfast every morning, dinner every night, and lunch every day with my with my family. And I go down there and it's like a fucking zoo. 
And I'm like, this is what it would be like if I went to a physical office. Yes. <laughs> like I'm just getting a window into what reality window. looks like yes. for people. Yes. It definitely creates a, a ton of sadness for me personally on just like a humanitarian level, like um, regardless of gender or anything of that, I, I think it would be very emotionally and mentally, mentally taxing and fatiguing to not know who to show up for at any given moment. Do you listen to your kids screaming? Like the hardest part of my day, every single day, is when I leave my house, my son's screaming for me. And I'm like, oh my God, like, do I just turn back? Do I not go? Like, what do I do? And then I think about what would it be like if my wife also not worked a nine to five job? I'm working off of our garage and she was inside of our house and she's listening to them scream all day long while she was trying to be on a Zoom call. Like, how would this even work? How would this be even fair? And we invite our employees' children to happy hours. We let them come into our meetings. We let them be a part of our life simply to try to ease the, the environmental intensity of their own home where the fluidity of your kids running in and out of, well, I'm sure it's not fun for them and disturbs their focus. They at least don't have like the sense of like awkwardness or shame or whatever and we just accept life for what it is. But I mean, I think that uh, as some of my family members who have small children have said, like they're holding on by, um, they actually enjoy working from home. They don't like their working from home situation. Um, and those are two very different things. It's a luxury. It's a privilege to not have to commute and deal with parking and the expense and being away and missing bedtime, missing bath time. It, there's no parent wants to miss that. But working at a coffee table while your kids are being babysat by Paw Patrol is like anxiety inducing every single day. It makes the day a marathon. And I feel that companies, mine included, need to do a much, 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 much better job of supporting this as well as stipending it to help afford a better work from home environment. And that we need to have a much broader conversation at a system level in terms of how can a more equitable situation at home look like so that one partner doesn't get to just check out and come back after work and one partner is doing two jobs at once. And those are, you know, there's a lot of variables there to kind of fix, which is hard. Time choice. That was your time choice. So you're doing it. I mean, I think that's the beauty. The beauty is you do have a company. You have that privilege to make those decisions. I like to call them fair play, fair pay, and fair day decisions, right? The fair play is what you just said, parenting out loud, inviting those kids on, telling people I'm going to get off to go take my son to the pediatrician's office. Um, As a CEO, that makes a huge difference in the culture. That's fair play. Fair day is giving people a hard out, right? We are off at five uh, or whatever, five or whatever it is. Um, We will not reach you again. Or if you have to get back online, we want to make sure that you have enough time for your kids to bed, whatever, whatever it is, whatever boundaries are. And then I like to say that then that leads to fair pay, because then what ends up happening is more women can rise the ranks at your company because they feel empowered to be able to have that full-time job because they haven't been forced out of your workforce by being as for me, it was having a, our lactation space in my corporation was a dark stairwell and my breast pump sounded like sex noises. And I was like, I'm sick of, that was the end of it for me in my, in my corporate career. Yeah. I mean, I am going to go on the record and say, I think that working from home long-term, not short-term, I'm talking like 2030 could be the greatest thing ever for parents. But there's a lot of changes that have to be put in place for that statement to be true. And the easiest, lowest hanging fruit thing for me right now, which Maple does support, is that we do not have being at your desk as a KPI and we don't have a nine to five working schedule. So we have something that's called family flexibility. If you want to work from 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. at night, because that's what's best for your family, 
as long as it's not affecting productivity, have at it. You want to work at, we have a guy on our team and bless his heart. I think he's a shining example. <laughs> he's like, I'm going to work three hours in the morning and then I'm taking my kids to school. And then I'm going to work three hours in the afternoon. And then I'm picking my kids up. And then I'll work two hours after dinner. And that's going to be my schedule. And it's not wow. negotiable. So we schedule all of our meetings for him. So he starts his day at 5 a.m. And he gets up wow. and he works from 5 a.m. to 8. And then he's with his kids. And then he comes back online. And then he hammers. And then he, he calls it dad time, checks out, turns off Slack, does dinner with his family, and then comes back online. And that would not be for everyone. But I'm happy that we've created a work environment that supports it. And I think every company needs to do the same. Absolutely. And I I think the most important thing that Michael is saying, I'm just going to reiterate it for you, is that work from home is not flexible work. (laughs) What Michael just talked about was flexible work. That is not work from home. Work from home, if you're telling people to be in their ass in a chair eight hours a day, is not flexible work. So you cannot conflate, leaders who are listening here, you cannot conflate work from home with flexible work. You have to think deeper and harder about things. um, And that is what Michael is just talking about. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We really, really got into the thick of it and we do want to continue. We'd love to have you on again, Eve, so that we can update our listeners with even more information and tangible takeaways on what to do when it comes to establishing harmony in the home. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends and please do rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If you have suggestions for guests who should be on What Matters Most, email me at thatstotalmomsense at gmail.com. And do follow Michael and I at Kanika Chada Gupta and at Grow Maple on Instagram, where we're most active. Remember, always trust your mom sense and your dad sense. Stay strong, parents. See you next time.